Hello, and welcome to the Currents of Folklore podcast. I'm your host, Cherish Bishop, and today I am meeting with folklorists Chad Buderbaugh and Ryan Coons from Maryland Traditions. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome. Thank you both for joining us. I am sitting here with Chad Buderbaugh and Ryan Coons. And would you both mind um, introducing yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having us, Cherish. I'm Chad Buderbaugh. I work at the Maryland State Arts Council, and uh, my uh, job title is Senior Program Director, and I have oversight of the Maryland Traditions Traditional Arts Program, as well as uh, oversight of some workforce development stuff that we're doing uh, for uh, individual artists in Maryland. And thank you again, Cherish, for having us. My name is Ryan Coons, and I'm Folk Life Specialist at uh, Maryland State Arts Council, working with Chad on Maryland Traditions. Uh, Folk Life Specialist is not the most descriptive job title, um, so I get to do a lot of really cool things, including administering several grants and awards, overseeing the Maryland Traditions archives, and overseeing our social media and communications. Thank you both. Can you give us a little bit more insight into how Maryland Traditions works and operates and what exactly that all entails? Sure, so we, we are one of many traditional arts programs uh, nested within a state arts agency. Every state in the union has a state arts agency, whether it's called an arts council or an arts board or what have you. Many of those state arts agencies also have traditional arts programs uh, whose purpose very generally is to support traditional arts in one way or another. Uh, in Maryland, uh, the Maryland Traditions Program or some form of it has been in place since the early 1970s, right, right around 1974, I believe. And uh, in recent decades, our main job has been grant making. So we provide funding to either traditional artists who are working in their own genres or to organizations who are supporting traditional arts in some way. That sounds really interesting. And it sounds like there's a lot that would fall under that category, right, of traditional artists, um, and especially with grant making and, and funding opportunities. Um, as you know, the focus of this podcast is to kind of bring to light um, organizations, researchers, scholars, programs that are including environmental topics, environmental sustainability and um, environmental change um, or like environmental occupational folk life. During our last conversation, we had talked a little bit about the term sustainability and for Maryland traditions does not typically use the word sustainability. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an insight as to why that is and uh, your feelings regarding the term sustainability and how that actually helps you perform sustainability better? Well, we haven't used it lately. Uh, my predecessors definitely used it. And uh, they, they did the work of uh, documenting, presenting, and sustaining traditions. And um, I should mention that before I became senior program director, I was state folklorist for about five years. And in that time, I had some oversight to kind of rejigger the mission and the, the description of what we do. So I, I kind of began using the word sustainability less because it places the Arts Council at the center of the cultural expression rather than the people who are members of that culture. 
uh, in, in that our work somehow sustains uh, what song this singer is singing or what food that cook is making or uh, what story that storyteller is telling. I, I, don't, I don't feel that that's true. I feel that we can probably amplify what those people are doing and raise the profile maybe by inviting somebody to a festival. But to say that we sustain it, in my mind, is to say that we are responsible somehow for folk expression. And that's not the case. So instead of sustain now, our, our phrasing is that uh, Maryland Traditions identifies, documents, supports, and presents living cultural traditions. Realizing too that there are probably plenty of cultural workers who would disagree with the way we interpret things here, but that's okay. You say that Maryland Traditions' main focus is to then provide you know, grants and funding opportunities to help artists for whatever their cause or purpose or traditions are. Yes, and that's a result of the wealth of the Arts Council. Uh, as state arts councils go, Maryland is very fortunate. There's always been very strong support in Maryland for the arts. And so in fiscal year 2023, which will start confusingly, it will start on July 1st of this year and go through June of next year, um, we are, uh, it's possible that we will receive almost $30 million uh, in, in um, state allocation to spread across, you know, the salaries, salaries of the staff, the, all the programming that we do, all the, and then all of our overhead as well. And that's, that's a lot relative to other arts councils. There are only two or three arts councils that are um, spending more on the arts than, than Maryland. So when, when the wealth is at that level, grant making becomes more important from a redistribution of wealth standpoint, but also from a capacity standpoint. Because if we were to try and be out in the field doing ethnographic field work for even half of our time, say 20 hours a week, then we would still have these large amounts of money that that I, I think it would be it would be difficult to spend down that money through stable, carefully built grant programs if we were spending a lot of time doing ethnographic field work. Now, in other state arts councils, the the state folklorist position is is just one person. Um, in in a number of states in recent years, that it's been one person who's starting a program from scratch. And I think in those situations, it makes a ton of sense to be doing mostly ethnographic field work. But the Maryland State Arts Council is not in that position. We've had a dedicated folklorists for decades now. So a lot of their infrastructure and relationships with people in the field are already there. And so our work today is to manage the, manage the funding and make sure that it's getting to the people who could really use it in their own work. Well, with funding, um, and again, the focus of the podcast being on environmental topics, issues such as COVID obviously have impacted artists, but also topics and issues such as climate change. Have you seen any um, effects, you know, to the local communities because of topics such as this? Sure. Uh, you know, we hear stories about Chesapeake Bay Islands that just aren't there anymore. 
And there are people who are alive today, maybe say in their 60s, who could remember them clearly from childhood. Uh, we have watermen like uh, Captain Teddy Daniels down in Somerset County who, who can see spits of sand kind of eroding year after year. And um, it's inarguable that uh, land is being lost. Now, the reasons that people have for why that land is being lost are different because a number of reasons, you know, political opinions and uh, whether or not folks agree with, with climate change. Um, but, uh, but everybody does, does agree that, you know, the Chesapeake, the, the shape of the Chesapeake Bay and the islands within it are, it's, it's all changing. So can you um, go into a little bit more about what the grant making process looks like? Sure, for all of MSAC's grants, there is an open application process that any member of the Maryland public can participate in. Uh, and uh, there, uh, there's a deadline on those applications. After that, they're all reviewed for eligibility by a member of the staff or members of the staff. Uh, and then they, uh, they go into panel evaluation. And MSAC takes all its panelists by application from the Maryland public. And ideally, these are going to be subject matter experts in the types of grants that are being considered. And they'll look at the applications for a few weeks, sometimes more. Uh, sometimes they'll even have uh, individual conversations with the applicants, depending on the type of grant. And then the panel makes recommendations to the staff and uh, the staff then awards the grants based on those recommendations. And with the funding and how it's dispersed, what percentage of that would you say goes to more like occupational folk life practitioners? It varies from year to year. It really has to do more with who's applying than it does with any budgeting we do. So, um, and an urban cultural arts center like the Creative Alliance in Baltimore could do landscape-based programming, but it's much more likely that you will see landscape-based programming at a place like the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, which is situated right on the bay or at the Ward Museum of Wildfowl Art on the Lower Eastern Shore in Salisbury, which is a, uh, a decoy art museum. Those are, those are cultural practices and art forms that are by nature a little more closely associated with the landscape than, than what you might see at Creative Alliance. Um, moving forward a little bit, I wanted to touch on um, some of the awards and particularly, um, from our last discussion, we had talked a little bit about the traditional homelands that um, Ryan and I had discussed briefly. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit more insight into what that is and how, how it's going so far. Well, we have the program, the Heritage Award, the Maryland Heritage Award, uh, which has been around since, oh, 2007. And again, this is members of the public located anywhere in the world nominating persons people, places, and traditions geographically based in Maryland for this award, which now comes with a um, nice little amount of funding there uh, for which recipients can use it however they want. There's no requirements there. But um, because this is members of the public who are nominating, um, we get a wonderfully wide and rich gambit of different nominations. So beginning in 2013, we had uh, nominations coming in for traditional homelands of indigenous peoples. 
the very first one in 2013 that received it uh, was the Piscataway homelands. This is tribal peoples located in what's now called Southern Maryland. Um, and with that, we had, you know, with, with them kind of inaugurating this approach, we've had several different tribal lands be nominated and then receive the award based off of panelist recommendations, including the following year in 2014, Akahanic traditional lands through the Bending Water Park and Indian water trails, um, also on the Eastern shore where Piscataway is on the Western shore of Maryland. Um, we've also had uh, successful nomination for the Baltimore American Indian Center, which is kind of a diasporic tribal gathering place within Baltimore city proper. And then also the um, Nasu Waywash Band of Indians located on the Eastern shore were nominated and received the award uh, in 2020 on, in Dorchester County on the Eastern shore. So these, um, it, it's, there, there's several things going on here, right? There's the, the nomination, which is always a, um, a privilege to be nominated and more privilege to receive the award. But it's also uh, important to note that this does come with a price tag, right? This does come with funding for the recipients, not the nominators, but the recipients of the award to do with whatever they want, whether that's building programming, whether that's paying medical bills because there's a pandemic on, whether that's um, purchasing and or maintaining a cultural resources center, you know, the, the sky's literally the limit. On a more public side of things, this award is meant to um, very publicly acknowledge long-standing contributions to the traditional arts defined very broadly. And in these instances, when tribal lands have been nominated and received the award, there's also, uh, this has kind of turned into a really rich opportunity to acknowledge the relationship that tribal peoples had, have, and will continue to have with their traditional lands. So it's, um, it's checking a lot of boxes there. And going, going back to, thanks for that, Ryan, going back to our, our purpose in Maryland traditions that really it, it, we're presenting traditions in that regard. And whatever, whatever you might think of the state of Maryland as a government entity, um, whatever you might think of its history and how it was established, there is an element of, of power behind the state sanctioning something in the way that, that the Maryland Traditions Heritage Awards program has sanctioned traditional homelands of indigenous people. So, so our hope is that by presenting traditions in this way, that we can raise the profile, we can use our profile to raise their profile a little bit. And maybe that leads to future opportunities. Maybe, maybe, maybe people start trying their hand at grant making or grant writing in a way that they hadn't previously. Um, I don't wanna to sound too paternalistic or anything, but, but in the best of times, that's how a heritage award works. And Chad, I really like the way you phrased this, that um, whatever the history is, there is sometimes a great deal of power in the state, in heavy scare quotes and all caps, acknowledging something. Uh, and I think this is particularly something we've experienced within this broader project that we're very close to culminating this uh, Maryland State Arts Council land acknowledgement project in which uh, we've received a whole slew um, some of the largest numbers of requests actually from the public for information on and uh, best guidelines, best resources guidelines on how to make and deliver meaningful land acknowledgements. Land acknowledgements, of course, are statements that uh, acknowledge the relationships between tribal peoples who were or hopefully still are local to the place where you, the artist, acknowledging or you, the institution, acknowledging. Um, 
who, where those lands, where those relationships with lands have been often sundered or certainly changed because of settler colonialism, uh, settler nation states, um, actors like what is now called the state of Maryland. And one of many strengths of this project is that is just in the act of the state going to tribes and saying, hi, we know you exist. We would love to be able to consult you, pay you for your time and share the way you want to be known with the broader non-indigenous public in what's now called Maryland. And um, several tribes in whose lands are now claimed by Maryland decided they didn't want to participate and said, no thanks, that's not what we've got time for or interest in right now, which is perfectly fine. A number of tribes were very interested and several of them in the process of consultation which, uh, were kind enough to share with us how meaningful it was just to have the state recognize them, listen to them, you know, just, <laughs> yes, we exist. Thank you for sharing our story that we exist. And this is something that I think is um, sad and vital at the same time, because Maryland, as we've been finding through this project, has been particularly characterized by what's called indigenous erasure, which are narrative and sometimes quite physical ways of removing native peoples from their landscapes, either narrating them into the history books or having been here back in the past or literal forms of genocide uh, throughout the history of the US nation state. And Maryland has been particularly characterized by indigenous erasure. Um, sometimes it seems more so than some of our neighboring states, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Virginia, where there are tribes who appear to have a comparative, that is a very important word here, comparative place in the public eye. Um, so again, one of the things that I'm quite excited about with this project, which will be which is culminating right now, we've got it up online. We're doing a public announcement very soon. Um, uh, for a series of public resources so that folks can make their land acknowledgements, so that folks can learn more about the histories of these tribal peoples that most of us, you know, having grown up in Maryland, I had no idea. Many of people my age, older and younger, had no idea there are still tribal peoples in Maryland. So it's an important resource to get out there, but it's also quite meaningful the fact that we're actually able to kind of use the power inherent in us working for a state agency to, um, I don't like this word, but I can't think of a better one, validate, you know, acknowledge the fact that tribes are still here. Uh, it's, it's a privilege from our perspective to be able to do that. And it should have been done a long time ago. And I'm glad we're able to be doing it finally now. Can you give a bit more information about this program, Ryan? Um, you said it's coming up soon. Is that something you're able to discuss openly with us right now? So back in 2020, pandemic was just starting, and we at Maryland State Arts Council had received a number of requests from our constituents in Maryland, from independent artists, county arts agencies, regional folk life centers, um, really folks across the board in different institutional affiliations and independently. We wanna learn how to do land acknowledgements. We want resources on how to do them in Maryland. And there are some amazing resources out there publicly available, especially coming out of Canada for North America. Um, variety of nonprofit arts, especially arts and cultural, uh, culture-focused agencies in the U.S., but Maryland, not much is known about that. So, you know, dear MSAC, we are constituents, want resources. We're a public institution. We often respond or need, to, you know, need to receive public input in order to do some of our programs, uh, as for example, when we edit programs um, to improve them using a series of publicly derived 
experts, this is kind of that process. Um, so reacting to public requests, we put together um, a bunch of research over time uh, in collaboration with the Maryland Commission on Indian Affairs, which is another Maryland uh, state entity, and also um, consulted with some of our previous grantees who themselves are indigenous, asking them their opinions on best ways forward, how we can design a project that's meaningful, that's not just going to be paying lip service. And um, following their advice, we engaged in a series of compensated consultations with tribal peoples. This took about, ooh, roughly a year to be able to reach out to all of the tribes whose lands are claimed by Maryland, introduce ourselves, develop sufficient relationships and trust for us to be able to say, hey, we want to engage you in this project. Is this something you have time for? Is this something you have interest in? Uh, some said no, some said yes, please. Uh, and we get engaged in the consultations, giving them a series of questions that we would love to know answers to, and then actually set about recording virtually, much like we're doing right now in this conversation for this podcast, their responses, their questions, their critiques, uh, and um, responses to who are you, who were you, where are you, where were you if different, and how do you want to be known, tribal people? Those are kind of the big bold headline questions. The results of those, the recordings, uh, will be making their way into the Maryland Traditions Archives in the very near future. They're going to be a public resource. And out of them, we have uh, created about a 40-page PDF document and a web page that are live now uh, and will be publicly announced a little later in March so that folks in Maryland have a series of best practices to go to to learn how to do land acknowledgments. Um, there are sample texts, some of them written by tribal consultants, uh, most of them written using information shared with us by tribal consultants. And I think perhaps most importantly, uh, information on um, the relationships those tribal peoples have with their landscapes. Uh, I hesitate sometimes to use the phrase traditional lands because that sometimes circumscribes things more than history would have us know. Um, and also uh, information on tribal histories, as I said, but also a series of kind of introductory, introductory concepts um, within what's sometimes called indigenous studies, native studies, because working within a land acknowledgement, creating a land acknowledgement does sometimes, when done at its best, if you will, it forces those of us who are not indigenous to really begin to even comprehend that many tribal peoples live and exist in worlds that look a little different from the mainstream settler non-indigenous perspectives. Worldviews in which land is not a resource to extract from, but rather kin to relate with. Uh, that's a very subtle and very, very important distinction. And I advocate folks who, you know, I'm lucky to field a lot of requests about information regarding land acknowledgements on a monthly basis. That's one of the things that I try to advocate. Hey, we've got this resource, but really start to try to think about how folks see the world differently. How can you possibly follow their lead? How can you learn from that? It's, um, it's turned into quite a meaningful project. On the um, kind of the other side of the perspective, you know, us as a state agency, there's also the added benefit, if you will, that by engaging in this project and getting to develop these relationships with tribal peoples, we're actually able to support them better. So we've essentially developed 
or received, I think might be a better verb, uh, a new constituency to MSAC because as Chad's mentioned, or one of our primary functions is grant making. We try to get money out the door to people and organizations doing the work that we have grants for. And tribal peoples very much are residents of Maryland. They are therefore very much eligible for money that is coming from what's now called the state of Maryland. And historically, they weren't receiving it. Historically, there were comparatively few grantees or applicants who are indigenous. And by developing this constituency through this project, we're hoping to funnel additional funding into Indian country to help tribal peoples with the projects they want to do. This is them coming to us for funds and coming to us for technical assistance to improve their grant writing uh, in order that we can get money out the door to them. So it's, uh, it benefits the public who wants to know more information about land acknowledgements. It benefits tribal peoples because it makes you know, there's now this public resource where you can learn about them and that they exist and in some cases go to their tribal websites. And it benefits them also because um, they are hopefully going to be start receiving additional funding that they've been eligible for a while and now have greater access and relationships to be able to access it. That is incredibly powerful. I'm just listening to that. Um, it seems like you guys are doing really good work. Um, and it really um, goes back into our previous conversation where Chad was discussing reflexive ethnography, right? Listening to and addressing, right? The, the needs and the concerns and the wants of those there in the state of Maryland. Um, do you have any other examples you'd like to share about any other projects or or, or grants or, or funding opportunities that have come out of, of that practice. You know, as trained folklorist, field researchers, ethnomusicologists, you know, Chad and I come from different backgrounds with a lot of overlap. Um, having just finished what we call a program revision, I, I've caught myself thinking about that very much like reflexive ethnography. When when we say program revision at MSAC, we are of course referring to a process in which we solicit um, Maryland constituents, residents of the state who have the time and the interest and the um, backgrounds to be able to provide us with useful critical information to improve one of our grant programs. Um, we are in the process right now of finishing up a pretty hefty revision to the Heritage Awards and to the Folklife Apprenticeship grant programs that are both administered by Maryland Traditions. And this involved a panel of, I think, 10 editors from across the state, geographically, ethnically, uh, coming from culture workers, artists, administrators, um, a particularly rich population of editors with some very excellent feedback. Uh, and the, this really boils down to, uh, follow, this process really does follow on many of the strengths of reflexive ethnography in which we are going to people, in this case, editors who self-select from the public, listening to them, asking their feedback, providing them information to make decisions or recommendations about how to improve things. Uh, and we're in the process literally right now of acting on it. Um, acting on it means rewriting guidelines for grants, rewriting grant amounts, um, running this material past our leadership, past our council, past our department secretary, so on and so forth. Uh, and that's that's where we are right now. It's it's kind of 
reflexive ethnography within the grant making process. It, it's, it's actually quite exciting to be able to do, I gotta say. Well, with, um, again, reflexive ethnography or such as the traditional homelands, yeah, it's being reviewed by, by tribes on their end, but it was also supposed to be reviewed by the Department of Commerce, is that correct? Yes, thank you. I forgot to mention this earlier. So in addition to actively engaging with tribes with the Land Acknowledgement Project, um, once we had written up and done our internal revisions on essentially pros representing tribes, that pros went to the tribes for them to review, okay, edit, uh, delete, just so that the ways they were, are represented is culturally appropriate and approved by them. Following that procedure, which uh, we've completed um, several months ago, that material then had to be reviewed by our parent agency, the Maryland Department of Commerce. And as it happened in their review, they also sent it to the office of the governor um, and both passed it without any edits, which I've never heard of. And I'm going to take that as the um, certainly positive thing. I don't know if wins the right word, but um, I was not expecting that very positive response. I was expecting certainly edits and we didn't receive any. So it's, it's there for the world to use. And um, for folks working in agencies like MSAC, whether it's in a state or private context, um, it's there as a model for you to use. Uh, and we can speak to its power, to its utility and to the way it can help build relationships, build coalitions to be able to, in this instance, um, certainly increase the optics around tribal peoples, uh, hopefully increase awareness of tribal sovereignty and the importance of tribal sovereignty, and, 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 and. So I would encourage folks outside of the state to take a look at it as well, just as a potential model. Well, from what I understand, the Land Acknowledgement Project and the traditional homelands are part of what you, you call the Folk Life Network. Can you explain more about what that is and what other projects you have that are part of this network? Sure. Uh, those two elements are only connected to the Folk Life Network in that they are elements of Maryland traditions at large. But the Folk Life Network, distinct granting program of Maryland traditions that provides uh, funding and resources annually to eight regional folk life centers around the state. And it was rolled out in 2019. And uh, it, uh, it now provides, well, going forward, it will provide an $85,000 grant for traditional arts activities of any kind with the idea that the people in these regional folk life centers understand their own regions better than we could at the state level. Uh, and, and that we rely on them and trust them to use those funds to maximal service to their local communities. So that might look like a festival in one place. It might look like field work in another place. It might look like archiving or other types of documentation in yet another place. We really leave it intentionally loose so that uh, people in their own localities can, can set their own uh, agendas. Now, Maryland Traditions also has regional point people, I guess, throughout the state that help 
navigate things? Um, Throughout the Folk Life Network, that's yeah. right. So there, there are teams of people at each regional Folk Life Center who we communicate with to understand what's going on in their areas. And they're really the lifeblood of the network. We, we um, tremendously appreciate their efforts at the regional level. And uh, some of them have been with us for many, many years. Some of them are relatively new to the network, but all have a great knowledge of, of where they're working and who the people are there. Uh, and um, it's, it's been wonderful to kind of cultivate and steward those relationships over the years. Now, you said the Folk Life Network is here within the state of Maryland. However, what if there's like projects or things that cross state lines? Is, is that something that happens on occasion? It does, especially in Western Maryland, where the, the, the breadth of the state is only like two or three miles at one point, I think, in Washington County with West Virginia to the south and Pennsylvania to the north. So inevitably, in places like that, you'll get multi-state types of projects happening. Uh, we can fund any arts activities that happen in Maryland. So if you've got a Pennsylvanian traditional artist coming to Cumberland to do a demonstration, we can fund that demonstration in Cumberland. But we can't cross state lines because our, our, our allocation is um, tax-based. Uh, so so we, we don't want to use Maryland tax dollars to support West Virginia or Pennsylvania or anywhere else types of activities. So it's a bit of a compromise, but there's always a way through in one way or another. Fair enough. <laughs> um, great. Well, to kind of close up here, I wanted to end um, really speaking about the Maryland Traditions Archive. Um, and I was wondering um, if you can just give us a bit of background. I understand that the archive is part of the Folk Life Network, if I'm correct. Uh, it is a, an, an element of one of the regional Folk Life Centers, yeah, at UMBC. Right. I wonder if you and Ryan can kind of share with us about the archive, right? I understand that there's like a shared stewardship there, there's a lot of connections, like a Bill of Rights that was there, there's a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of stuff right so I wanted to give us all the information regarding that sure I'll, I'll start us off Ryan it was it was established in 2013 by our predecessors Cliff Murphy and Michelle Stefano at UMBC in their special collections department to serve as a repository for all of the documentation and administrative paperwork that we as a program were producing uh, it it, at that point, even there were already 40 years approximately of such documentation. Um, up to that point, there had been no central repository. Collections had been sort of split and sent to various regions in order to make them more accessible to the people in those regions uh, from whom they were originally called. Some stuff hadn't been really processed or archived at all. It was just sort of sitting in various office buildings. Some stuff had been um, damaged or, or lost. So the, the incorporation of the Maryland Traditions Archives was the, the concerted effort to make sure that um, no such disbursement or loss would ever happen again. And uh, when I came into the position six years ago, um, Ryan was certainly on my radar. 
Eventually, he became a part-time processing archivist for the archives, uh, and, and we eventually cut to his hiring at the Arts Council a couple of years ago, and Ryan, I'll turn it over to you there. He's done, I mean, he's done amazing work with the archives these couple of years. Well, thank you for that. Um, I should mention that uh, I come to this job um, not only with a degree degrees in um, ethnomusicology, but also with a certification in archival work. So I am a certified archivist, which is a rather unusual and increasingly I feel privileged position because I understand what happens on the fieldwork side and on the folkloric side when state folklorists go out into a place and quote unquote, create field research materials. And then I know what happens on the other side when that material enters a collection and needs to be processed in order that um, people can actually use it. Because if folks aren't using it, then you've just got a particularly well-designed, well-organized attic, um, which isn't doing most folks any good. Uh, and we're very privileged to not have that situation with the, this partnership, um, originally partnership, and now uh, part of the Folklife Network relationship with University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, the archive is in particularly good hands. Um, the archive folks there are have a long-standing relationship with their local community uh, and beyond. So having the archive there is a really good fit. Um, and what we've done over the past two, three years is to begin implementing a policy of what's called shared stewardship. This is essentially uh, the archival version of nothing for us without us in big bold capital headline letters. Um, shared stewardship as a policy was originally created by the Smithsonian Institution Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, CFCH, uh, especially the Ralph Rinsler archives housed under that institution. And um, Maryland Traditions Archives is actually rather unusual because again at CFCH with Smithsonian, they're going into existing archival collections and going back to folks and saying, you know, is this accurate? Is this ethical? Does this need to change? Do we need to change metadata standards? Are we using terms that might not be the best terms, the most accurate might be actively insulting. Um, whereas we in the Maryland Traditions Archives are actually able to bring in new to us collections for the first time, creating them, accessioning them, using shared stewardship from the get-go. And the kind of case study and point of this is the Ashley Minner Collection, who uh, Ashley is um, a community-based artist in Baltimore County, Baltimore City. She's an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. Uh, and of course, the Lumbee folks have a very strong kind of expat community here in what is now Baltimore uh, since the late 1800s, especially mid-1900s, coming here for works at work and jobs. Uh, and Ashley has been conducting research with her community and with other diasporic communities based in especially Baltimore City in what was known as uh, the East Baltimore-based reservation. Not a formal reservation designated as such, but an informal nickname known as the reservation in East Baltimore. And the census records and the newspaper articles and the oral history interviews and the maps and the photos that she has amassed and continues to amass um, through her research and through the relationships within her communities has entered um, the archive as the Ashley Minner Collection. And in so doing, um, she and the collections right now actually are in the process of creating a bill of rights, 
which is kind of the governing document that will govern the material staying in the archive, the archives um, duties and privileges, the community's duties and privileges, and the duties and privileges of the actual stuff that comprises the archive. Because of course, within many indigenous uh, worldviews, the, you know, the stuff, the recordings, the papers, the photographs, and so on and so forth, these are persons in their own right and need to receive their own uh, set of duties and restrictions and abilities and privileges as outlined in this bill. Um, Ashley and archival staff are working on this right now. This is kind of cutting edge right now. I don't know if anyone else is doing this kind of work. It's so exciting to be able to advise on the sidelines as it were. Um, but it, it really does speak to this broader goal of shared stewardship in that the folks represented in the collections, whether they are quote unquote folks in the field being interviewed, whether they are the folklorists or field researchers doing the interview, they all have a stake in the materials by, by virtue of being represented in them. Uh, so bringing shared stewardship in as kind of the, the guiding force has allowed us to develop relationships within communities, to strengthen them, to improve them, and thereby to improve the way these things are represented and made accessible to the broader public. It's, um, it's a win-win across the board. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to see some other institutions eyeing shared stewardship and I hope they they begin implementing it because we've we've had nothing but success with it. Brian, was it really the CFCH that piloted it? Yes, indeed. Huh. It is I thought it was the AFC. Nope. Uh, to my knowledge, AFC does not have this as their policy. It's it's CFCH at Smithsonian. I do know that um, since they piloted it, um, the current Smithsonian secretary, Dr. Lonnie Bunch, has made shared stewardship kind of the, the policy writ large of Smithsonian. Um, but that's a relatively recent designation. And um, <laughs> like every other government agency in the world, uh, nothing moves quickly. So I, I think we might, I think little old Maryland Traditions Archives might be very much at the cutting edge of shared stewardship just by virtue of being able to bring in new collections from the get-go and not just going back into old ones, which is of course important and invaluable stuff to do, but we, we're, we're kind of piloting new ground here and it's super exciting to see where that's going. Um, thank you both so much. I'm really excited to see what, what, what comes forth from this. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, you guys are doing such great work, right? The programs and the grants is just, right? There's there's a lot that other states can learn from how you guys are are operating this. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, and I can. It was, it was a pleasure <laughs> sitting with you this hour. This this has been good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cherish. Thanks, Cherish. My thanks to Chad and Ryan for meeting with me today. If you wish to get in contact with either of them or want to learn more about their work, you can find their contact information and links to the Maryland Traditions website in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and see you next time. Mm -hmm.